All right, and we're live. Uh, hi, I am Steve Bishop from ProgrammingMadeEasy.com, and uh, a lot of you guys know me from my YouTube channel, of course, which you guys are watching right now. But this man that I have on the show today probably doesn't need very much of an introduction. Uh, he is just a world-class guy that if you go online and you start watching um, any YouTubes at all about architecture or you know clean coding or anything like that, you know that this is the guy that, that has basically been the driving force behind most of it. Um, he's written several books. There's Agile Software Development pra uh, Principles, Patterns, and Practices, right? The the uh, Agile PPP book, um, the Agile Principles, Practices, and Patterns in C Sharp, the Clean Code a Handbook for Agile Software Craftsmanship. Um, that's the one I'm actually, I'm going back and revising again. I'm watching that one. Uh, and then the Clean Coder is what he's working on now. And so we're gonna ask him about that in just a moment. Um, or not, is it the Clean Coder? No, you're working on the Agile. Um, I'm working on Clean Architecture. Clean architecture, that's the one I was going to ask you about. Yeah. So this is Uncle Bob, which most of you guys have probably heard of by this time. If you've been in the industry for any length of time, you know who Uncle Bob is. I mean, I, I was literally at a meeting the other day, and I asked how many people know Uncle Bob. There were maybe like 10 guys that were in the room, and all of them rose their hands. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so first of all, one of the things I like to do um, is just to talk a little bit about you and, you know, um, you know, my guests kind of get an idea. Did you have any brothers or sisters, any siblings that were with you? Oh, my. Uh, yeah, I have one sister. She's about five and a half years older than I am. Uh, lives in the heartland of Wisconsin. Um, lovely lady. Okay. Well, and it, did she take any sort of career path that... that you know, no, not even paralyzed no. years. Or? No, 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 no. She, she was <laughs> uh, very artistic and musical, and and uh, did a lot of singing and and that kind of stuff. Never um, wanted to be technical, as far as I know. And when I was, I don't know, um, four or five, uh, people would ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I'd say a scientist. <laughs> I think I got close. You I'm did. Not sure, I'm not sure this software stuff is really a science, but at least it's technical. Well, you know, I, I know that it was when you were 12 was when you decided you wanted to become a, a developer. So I imagine up to that right. point, you, you knew you wanted to do something technical. You just probably didn't know exactly what. Well, I wanted to design rocket ships and, and uh, faster than light drives and things like that. And then, as you said, when I was 12, I, I caught the bug for software. Now, were your parents at all technically minded? Like, were, was it something like your mom or dad kind of? It was my, well, my my father was a science teacher, and my mother was a, a registered nurse. And although my father was a science teacher, he was not really technically oriented, which is strange to say. Uh, I think he wanted to be a teacher first and wound up in the sciences. However, um, he would teach summer school. And I would go with him as a, a very young boy. I would go to uh, summer school when he was teaching junior high summer school. And uh, he would do all kinds of fascinating experiments. And I would see the same experiment over and over again, eight times, uh, eight periods in the summer school. And uh, I thought they were fascinating. So I learned an awful lot from that. And then he would, he would get these um, old movies, right? He had a projector that he'd set up and the big reels of film. 
And these were movies from the Bell system. And they had titles like uh, Bell Telephone, right? They, they had titles like um, uh, Our Mr. Sun or The Strange Case of the Cosmic Ray or Hemo the Magnificent. And I would watch them over and over and over. He would bring them home and we'd set the projector up and on the wall and I'd watch them there and then I'd watch them at summer school with him over and over. Uh, it was very indoctrinating, I think. I loved him, every bit of it. You know, that's kind of interesting because it, it sounds like it, the, the technical or the engineering kind of mentality comes from your dad because of the, the science. And it sounds like you were just talking about your sister, how she didn't really kind of go into this kind of career path and you didn't really get it from your mom. And you've talked a lot about this in the past about how, you know, women are not necessarily making headway in the industry. Yeah. So do you think the industry itself is making any headway? Do you think it's, it's doing any good strides to bring women into this type of workforce? Oh, to bring women in. I don't know. I think, I think it's only in the last decade that people have actually become aware that there's a significant problem. Um, other technical, uh, other technical uh, fields have fewer women than men, but software has ten times fewer women than men uh, than all of those other fields. The the number of women in software is on the order of three percent, whereas in most other fields it's more like twenty to thirty. So there's something wrong, and and it's only recently that we've begun to understand that there's even a problem. It's a bit striking because in the early days of computers, women were very prevalent. They were the first programmers. Um, the ENIAC, for example, was programmed entirely by women, almost entirely by women. Um, there were a lot of very early women in, the, in uh, the 40s and the early 50s and even into the 60s who were uh, very important. The, the word compiler, for example, was invented by a woman. The very first compiler was written by a woman, Grace Hopper, who eventually gave us COBOL. Um, there were lots of women in those early days, and then bit by bit, they faded away and didn't get replaced. Sometime in the 70s, or maybe the real early 80s, we saw graduates coming out of computer science degree programs, and they were almost entirely men, uh, astoundingly biased towards males, and very few women were coming out. This is at a time when the people who were programming computers at the time had become programmers after, after having been something else before. It's hmm. only in the 80s or the late 70s when you saw people leaving school and becoming programmers. And it was virtually all men who did that. So yeah, you've done a few fascinating talks about that on YouTube. The future of programming is the talk I think you've given probably the most, the most, the most recently. <laughs> you, you do it quite mm -hmm. often, I think. Especially I, your I Copenhagen one, I think is really good. People record it and they put it on YouTube. So there's several instances of it around. Yeah. It's one of your better talks, I think. I, I really enjoy it because it, it really kind of goes through the history of, of development. And it really kind of gives you a lot of insight into what we have done and how it relates to what we are 
probably going to lead up to. And I definitely want to get into that because that obviously ties into your craftsmanship movement. But um, I just kind of want to fall back a little bit here. Uh, do you think, is there anything new in software development that excites you, like something <laughs> brand new? <laughs> uh, yeah. <clears throat> um, our, our industry, the software industry, has been dominated by rampant change, extremely fast-paced change. From the time that I began programming seriously, um, when I was 18, that would have been 1970, uh, until now we have seen a tremendous change in the hardware. And that tremendous change in the hardware has led to a, a sense of change in the software. When you look very closely at the software, however, you realize that very little has actually changed. The tooling is unbelievable. I, we have IDEs that, that um, no one would have anticipated even 20 years ago. We have massive sort of software tools. We've got incredible amounts of memory. It's virtually infinite memory. The machines are ridiculously fast. Um, we have immense amounts of, of computer power. But the code has not changed much for a very long time. Uh, you take a look at C Sharp. Compare that to C. Not a lot of difference there. A little bit. You know, a couple of little features here and there. But it's pretty much C with a few bells and whistles. Um, compare um, Clojure to Lisp. Um, Clojure is a, a Lisp that runs on the JVM. It's virtually the same language. Take a look at some of the newer languages coming out, like Go. Okay, Go is kind of like C. It's got a little, you know, uh, substrings in it and, and the actor model built in, but it's still C. Um, Swift, Swift on the iOS platform. Um, they really made a deep commitment to strong typing, which I think is going to burn them. But other than that, it's just a really strongly typed C or Java. Um, what's new? What's new in the language world? And the answer to that is, well, there really isn't anything new in the language world. There are new languages, but those languages don't give us any new features. What we're seeing instead is a lot of old stuff rehashed over and over again, going around and around this cycle that makes us feel like there is advancement. I doubt there really is. Do you think then that it's just this more or less we need some sort of special hardware that's going to bring about a new language? That, that no. will be a better language, I should say, not a new language. But No, no, I don't know that that's going to happen. Um, it's possible, you know, quantum computing, everyone always says, well, Quantum computers is going to change everything. Um, I'm doubtful about that. Uh, there is some hope that a quantum computer will be able to do certain algorithms at high speed, but they're not general purpose. Um, I don't think that there is a new hardware in the near future, some kind of different hardware paradigm. Um, I think what we have is computers that were invented in roughly 1946, 45, and they have gotten much, much better. And we have a programming style that was invented at about the same time, and it has benefited greatly from the computers that have gotten much, much better, but has not changed in its fundamental nature at all. And as far as advancement is concerned, 
we have advanced in the tooling space, but what we know about the principles of software are pretty much the same as what we knew then. So um, I'm going to change gears again and go into a completely different subject. Okay. I like to do that. I like to, to change things up. That's fine. Um, so I've, I've listened to several of your talks, and it seems to me you're almost getting to this point where, um, and maybe this is something you'd like to comment on, is that modern MVC has actually kind of turned into an anti-pattern. <laughs> you think? Um, anti-pattern isn't the right word. Um, Modern MVC is is a, a useful way of structuring a web-based application. Modern MVC is not MVC. Model View Controller was invented in the in the seventies by, and I'm going to butcher his name, Trigvirinskout, as a um, a design pattern used in Smalltalk to put small things on the screen. It, when he talks about it now, or when Jim Copeland talks about it, who works closely with Trigby, um, they talk about it as a way to get the the uh, conceptual framework from the mind to the screen. They use this kind of philosophical way of talking about it. MVC, Model View Controller, was a very simple three-object um, design pattern that managed input, the controller was input, model, which was the the processing rules, and view, which was the output rules. And at, when I did model view controller in small talk in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, we had a model view controller for every button, uh, a model view controller for every text box, a model view controller for every individual shape on the screen. We did not have a model for the window and a view for the window and a controller for the whole window. That was not the way we did it. Uh, for some reason, the web kind of took it and twisted it and warped it, and now we've got these, these controllers, which aren't like old Smalltalk MVC controllers, uh, and lots of business objects, which really aren't like um, the old Smalltalk models. And then we have these massive views, which aren't an awful lot like the the views that we had in Smalltalk. So the names are the same, but the players look a lot different. Speaking of uh, patterns and practices, um, you obviously came up with this. We didn't really come up. You didn't invent the solid principles, but you were the first guy that really kind of put this whole thing together into a, a common practice and a common principle. Yes. How did you come across that? How did you form that in your mind? So some of the principles were old. Um, uh, several of them come from Bertrand Meyer. Some of them came from Barbara Liskoff. Most of them have been around a good long time. I supplied names for a few of them. Uh, I think the concept of dependency inversion is something I actually coined. The origin of these principles is fairly interesting. In the um, early 90s, there was an awful lot of uh, communication about software technology on Usenet. Usenet is kind of like an early Facebook. People would get on there and yell at each other. Oh, and, yeah. and that's exactly what we did. We'd get up there and we'd, we'd yell at each other with text messages, with textual messages that got compiled and threaded into the Usenet, uh, the net news application. 
And one guy who got on there, his name was Jim Fleming. He was on a, uh, a group called comp.object. You can still find these, these messages, by the way. Google still stores them all. And Jim Fleming posted the Ten Commandments of Object-Oriented Design. And I read them and I thought, well, these are kind of like the, the obvious things, like uh, all variables should be private and uh, classes should be named for nouns in the, in the domain and things like that. It was just the normal kinds of stuff that you would read. And I had been thinking fairly deeply about design principles at the time. And so I responded to that, to that message with a set of, I think it was eight or nine principles that I put names to. Uh, some of them already had names, like the open-closed principle and the Liskov substitution principle. And others, I kind of invented names on the spot because I needed to name them for that message. And then the debate began about that message, and I, I pretty well codified the, the notion of those principles in, uh, in some books and papers and blogs that I wrote, and it went from there. In, um, oh gosh, 2004, Michael Feathers came to me and said, you know, if you reorder these, they spell the word solid. And I thought, ooh, that's a really good idea. So I changed the order, and they've been the solid principles ever since. Now, I noticed that you don't really talk about the solid principles much anymore. It used to be probably a pretty fair staple of your, of your discussions, but now I, I don't see very much content about it from you or really too many other people, except as kind of like an afterthought of principles. Well, that's an interesting statement. Um, it, I've written so much about them in the past that uh, perhaps I just stay away from the topic because I figure I've over-covered it. Uh, although the, in the new book, The Clean Architecture, I go through them again. But um, yeah, when I'm blogging, I don't usually talk that much about them. It might be time to um, to reopen that again and, and do a, a, a series of blogs about the solid principles. Uh, there's, again, so much out there already, I think it might be a bit redundant, but okay, maybe it's time. Well, I think, it, especially for me personally, one of the areas that I'm also fascinated with is the functional programming. And in the C-sharp language, they're trying to make it more functional. So in that paradigm, it's, you know, trying to figure out how to make these two concepts be cohesive with each other, I think would be a really a new area to go because I think both of these things are really important for the future of our development. And if we could see how they kind of could be blended together to create a, a better, you know, architecture for our software, I think that would be a really important thing to be to be looking towards. Uh, you're probably right about that. Um, when, when I have done functional programming, I've done a fair bit of it. I don't see any any um, um, dissonance with the with the principles. They all still seem to apply just as well. So um, maybe I'm just taking a maybe I'm just being a little bit too blasé about this, and maybe I should crank up the old solid engine again and write about it in the context of of functional programming. It's a reasonable thing to do, probably. So um, again, changing gears, let's talk about agile. Um, obviously that was, that's a big part of your history. You know, it's what most people remember you and Martin Fowler and Kent Beck. I mean, everybody pretty much knows you guys because of agile. Um, do you, what was really the driving force? I, I know I've seen this 
you know, in multiple videos, but I think it's probably good to reiterate it for some people who may not have, have seen those videos yet. What was the driving force behind Agile? So if we go back to 1995-ish timeframe, I'm a, uh, a C++ consultant. I do an awful lot of C++ training back at that time. And I help people a lot with object-oriented design consulting. And the folks that I spent a lot of time with would then come to me and, and say, but what's the process? What process should I use? And I would scratch my head about that and think, well, isn't the process kind of obvious? And I got this request so many times that I thought, okay, I need to write down what I think the process is. So I, I sat down and I wrote this terrible paper, just awful paper, which I never published, thank God. Uh, it might be on a blog somewhere, but I'm not going to tell you where because it's awful. Um, and I, in this in this paper, I invented the process named code, which stood for called object design technique, and you have to drop the T. Um, That's rather so, inconvenient. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know. Anyway. Shortly after I had published this, I ran into um, one of Kent's uh, articles uh, on extreme programming. I hadn't heard about this before. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. It's sort of like what I wanted to say, but much better. And I read more and I read more and I thought, yeah, this is, this is good. I, this is what I should tell my clients. So I started pointing my clients to uh, the extreme programming documents that were starting to appear. And then just by chance, um, Kent Beck and I went to the same conference in Munich, probably 1999, maybe 98. And we happened to be teaching in classrooms right next to each other, right across the hall from each other. And I, I happened to see him and I, I had a break and I said to Kent, you know, we ought to talk about this extreme programming thing. And he said, sure, let's meet at lunch. And at lunch, we went down to the cafeteria and we had a long discussion. And at the end of that, I said, you know, I need you to write an article for the C++ report. I was the editor of the C++ report at the time. And so I said, I need you to write a, a, an article about this in the C++ report. He agreed. And he put this lovely article in there, which was very cool. This, this would have been uh, 99 probably. And then um, it occurred to me that there was an opportunity here to teach and promote this. So Kent and I got together in, at his house in 99, and we schemed and plotted a set of courses, which we called uh, XP Immersions. And we began to hold these at my office in uh, Illinois, north of Chicago. And we'd have you know, tons of people showing up to these things. It was like a, a horde of folks. This would have been right at the height of the dot-com era. And in the midst of all this, Kent decides that he's going to call a meeting, uh, which he calls the extreme leadership meeting. So now we're probably into 2000. And he calls this meeting of old patterns guys and language guys and, and programming people and other consultants. And we all go to his place and we, we we do a boat trip on the river and, and we have uh, discussions. And there was this 
thought that maybe we should start an organization. And most of the people were really negative on this. They said, no, 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 no organization. And I thought, no, it's exactly what we need. We need to have an organization. And I said so. And then as we left that meeting, Martin Fowler chased me and said, Bob, we've got to talk about this because I agree with you. So Martin and I met in Chicago a few weeks later and said, we need to have another meeting. And this is a meeting about people who do want to start an organization, although we'll invite some of the other folks too. And we, we came up with an in invitation list. And one of the people on the invitation list was Alistair Coburn. And when we sent out an invitation without any kind of uh, destination yet, we just were doing the, uh, an invitation in principle. Alistair came back and said, I'll organize the whole thing. We'll do it in, in uh, Snowbird. I was just about to send my own invitation out because the same thing occurred to me. Uh, and he organized a bunch of other folks. And uh, we all met at Snowbird and had this meeting. And in the meeting, we, we called it the Lightweight Process Summit. And I stood up at the beginning of the meeting and I said, we need a manifesto. And I sat down and that was my last input. And then everybody else just kind of went back and forth and back and forth. And we discussed for a long time and uh, we didn't like the name lightweight. And so we renamed it agile and there was a big fight about that because nobody liked that name either, but it was the, uh, the least hated of all the names that we came up with. It was two days, we came up with the, with the manifesto uh, and the basic principles, and then we kind of negotiated on the, the rest of the principles later. The fundamental motivation behind all of this was to get some kind of reasonable process that suited the way software would be, could be developed. We had given up on the idea of designing big things up front and then implementing them in a waterfall fashion. We tried it, we tried it for 30 years, it didn't work very well, and this was all the people who finally shook their heads and said, no, we can't do that. We need some incremental iterative way to work. Well, and I just, I just want to do a quick little plug here, I guess, because I do, I do. The, the architecture, and I'm basically the guy that kind of decides how these things are going to be built, and Gartman Technical Services here. Uh, if you notice on the other side of my wall over here, I have down below the manifesto. Yeah, I see it. Agile software development. And yeah. right above that is your brand new manifesto for software craftsmanship. Oh, yes. Okay. That's not so, mine, by the way. I was there at that meeting. But I did not come up with that manifesto. No? No? Is there... Is, what would you say is the driving force behind that manifesto? Is it kind of, I know there have been some problems with the agile implementation. You talk about this all the time, how kind of business started to interject themselves into what is essentially a best practice for programmers. And they started to kind of put the, the limitations on the developers. Do you think the craftsmanship movement is kind of in response to that business interjecting itself into our discipline? Business might not be the right word, but yes, it's, uh, the craftsmanship movement is a response to the dilution of the engineering authority that began in the Agile movement. The Agile movement was started by programmers, uh, started by engineers. It was uh, fundamentally uh, created by techies. And the, the goal was to create very high quality software with an emphasis on good design and implementation practices. 
the project management community did not see the, the high quality engineering practices. What they saw was the iterative development stuff, the estimation scheme, the meetings, the stand-up meetings, the, the uh, planning game, the, the, the stories, the backlogs. And they thought, yeah, that's great. We really need that. And they ran with it as fast as they could and fairly, much, fairly well hijacked the Agile movement, not intentionally. But it was just this overwhelming surge of project managers into the field. And it left the, it left the original engineers behind, it left the, the uh, authority of the engineers uh, languishing. And so the craftsmanship movement is an attempt to, to reassert that authority to say, look, uh, it's fine to have to have uh, iterations and stories and iteration planning meetings and all of that, but if you're not going to do a good job on the stuff you're building, it's not worth any of that. Um, and that's what the craftsmanship movement is really really about. Let's let's do the job well and manage it well. Would you say that Scrum is still an effective agile process? I mean, is it still even? Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure, Scrum is fine. There's no, nothing wrong with Scrum as long as you don't purposely abandon the technical disciplines. Unfortunately, a lot of Scrum, sh a lot of Scrum shops never learned the technical disciplines in the first place. Project managers who learned it, who learned Scrum, and may have heard about the technical disciplines, didn't understand them, and they they adopt this thing that the team rules, the team decides. Well, that's fine if the team is well-educated and dedicated to high-quality software. Um, if it's not, then it doesn't help at all. And a big part of the craftsmanship movement is, is also uh, TDD, right? You want to you get us more into the test-driven development arena. Tell us a little bit about how Kent introduced you to TDD, because I know that's an interesting story about how Kent kind of got you involved in TDD. Yeah, it is an interesting story. and and. I should say before I get into that story, yes, test-driven development is is one of the practices that the craftsmanship movement adopts mostly. Um, it is not the only one, uh, and it may be the one that is the most controversial. I don't know, but yeah, it is an important principle. Now, how did I get involved with this? Um, when I started reading those old extreme programming papers of Kent Beck's, I liked them all, except for this thing that he called test-first design. Uh, that made no sense to me at all. And, and I read his writings on it and thought, well, how are you supposed to write unit tests first? That's, that's ridiculous. No one writes their unit tests first. You write the code first, and then you write the unit tests later. So when I went to his house, to scheme about uh, building an XP class. Uh, he and I sat down and we wrote some code together. And he was doing test-driven development. I had, I had never seen it done before. I'd never seen this ridiculously short cycle before. I'd never seen anybody write code this way before. And he and I were pairing on it and he showed me how you write a little tiny test and, and then make it pass and then the next little tiny test and make it pass. And I was thunderstruck because it looked like this was working. And we, we put together a little application, which was um, in Java, in Swing. Um, 
Uh, it was a little animation of the uh, Cinderella's fairy godmother's wand. Uh, he called it Sparkle, and it was a very pretty thing. You know, sparks flying all over the screen. And we put this together using test-driven development, and it, it struck me that after a couple of hours of implementing this, uh, we had not once used a debugger. We had not once encountered a, an insurmountable problem or, or sat there scratching our heads, puzzling over what to do next. We had simply worked in this nice, orderly fashion and got this thing working. And I left that experience with a very different view. I thought, okay, there's something to this. It's, and it's something I have to learn. And so I went back to my home in, in the north of Chicago, and I began to practice. And, and, of course, it took a matter of months before I got reasonably good at this. Uh, but it was worth the investment because it's it's served me very well since. With, with test-driven development, um, I know that I, I've started to pick it up as a practice, and I'm, I'm still fairly shaky with it because it's, it's – it does feel a little bit unnatural at first, and it takes a while to get into it. Um, so I, I just kind of wanted to say, though, I, now that I'm doing it, it it's starting to feel more natural, and, it, and the, the principle behind it makes so much sense that I would almost feel like a fish out of water if a business didn't have it and didn't use it. So I guess this kind of leads to an important question of if I am a test-driven developer, and I get a job offer that has a, where the company doesn't want to do test-driven development. Should that be something that I just say, well, if you're not going to do it, I, I, I can't really do this. You know, should we try to maintain that as a standard? If you guys, as a business, are not going to comply with what I believe makes me a professional, should that maybe be a course of a reason why we shouldn't maybe take up that particular type of job? Well, it's I, that's a very personal kind of decision, and I wouldn't I – wouldn't, uh... Uh, venture to advise you or anyone else on that. What, what I would say is that were it me, uh, and if I had plenty of other job opportunities, I would choose the ones where test-driven development was, was well adopted. It would be very painful for me to now work somewhere where people weren't writing tests. Uh, I, I'm not sure how I would cope with that. <laughs> Do you think Maybe some of the anti-test-driven development kind of comes from this, I don't know, um, like an anti-establishment kind of thing. Because really the biggest proponents of it are, you know, like I said, you, Kent, and Martin. You know, you guys are these guys that are up there. You've been established, you know, in the industry for so long. Do you think maybe some of the backlash is, well, we just love our freedom so much and we, we want to be able to code however we want to. We don't want to adhere to these principles and practices because we love our freedom to be able to make our own choices. Do you think there's a little bit of that component to some of the anti-test-driven development? Well, yeah, I think, there? I think there's a lot of that. Um, um, people don't like to be told what to do, and they certainly don't like to be told that they've been wrong. And the sometimes the message of test-driven development comes across as uh, the whole industry's been doing it wrong for the last 30 years, and now everybody has to change. Uh, that's unfortunate. I don't know how we could have presented it better. Maybe we could have. But, you know, people will sometimes react negatively to that kind of thing. 
And then the other the other side of it is is that the 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 discipline itself makes no sense when you hear about it. It only starts to make sense, or at least it only made sense to me when I started doing it, watching it and doing it. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, okay, I see what's really going on here. Uh, and it turns out to be very beneficial. But it's very easy for people to look at it and go, ah, that's, that's absurd. There are also a number of early pitfalls that you can fall into uh, in writing tests first. You can easily write the wrong tests first. You can easily write too much of a test first. You can easily write poorly designed tests first. And you learn very quickly what to do and what not to do. But you can get discouraged by those early pitfalls and then abandon everything. A lot, a lot of folks have done that. They've tried it for a day or two and then, oh, this didn't work, and then out. Another part of the craftsmanship movement that I kind of wanted to, to bring up was, the and, and you used this word on the phone with me, uh, just the other day when we were talking about arranging this, and I thought it was a, a brilliant word because it means so much, is ethics, the, the ethics of software development and how we don't really think in terms yet of ethics when we're doing our development. We're not, I mean, we even have this sort of culture of anti-ethics, you know, and, and some of the, the you know, the, uh, you know, like viruses that get created, the Trojans, that sort of thing. There's this whole kind of anti-culture in a way uh, of, of developers that are trying to create chaos. And, and at some point, we have to kind of address this ethical question. And I know that craftsmanship movement tries to, to talk about that. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came up with, I mean, how, what drove you towards this ethical type of direction for our development? So software is, um, everywhere now. Uh, and it, it's, it's in places where you don't even think it, it could get. Um, there is software running in you know, most of the thermostats in the houses or, or the microwave ovens or the dishwashers, certainly all of the televisions nowadays. Um, more importantly, you can't do anything in our society if a software system is not somehow in control of it. You can't buy anything, you can't sell anything, you can't get insurance. If you break a law, software will be involved in the enforcement. If a law gets made, software will be involved in the, in the development of the law. Software runs everything. Your, I, I say this at conferences a great deal, your grandmother, whether she's alive, if she's alive, um, uses a software system on a minute-by-minute -minute basis. Everybody is completely immersed in a society that is incredibly dependent on software and does not really realize it yet. Most of us live our lives, we flip on light switches, we turn on TVs, we nuke something in the microwave oven without realizing that there's a tremendous amount of software governing everything, everything we are doing it while we are doing these normal everyday activities. Software developers have intruded themselves into every aspect of normal life. And that means that software developers have an ethical responsibility to all of these people who are using this software as their way of life, their normal way of life. Our society would crumble if we did not have this software going. 
we as programmers have an ethical responsibility to recognize that and to recognize just how serious this dependence has become and to raise our game because the, the software we write nowadays is killing people. None of us got into this business because we wanted to kill anybody. But if you're writing software in a, in a car, you can write code that will kill someone. If you write software in an airplane, if you write software in a, in a nuclear reactor, if you write software in a microwave oven, you can write code that will kill people and or hurt them badly or destroy fortunes or, or sometimes just be you know, mildly inconvenient. It doesn't matter. There is an ethics here involved now. We used to write code because it was fun. We used to write code, you know, go to a, a machine and, and I, I do this in the drugstores where they had a Commodore 64 sitting out or a, or a TI-80 back in the 80s. I'd write a little program uh, in basic just to, to print my name a million times or to uh, randomly emit characters on the screen. It was fun. And I don't want to take away from that kind of fun. On the other hand, we as programmers are now in a position of, of incredible power, and we don't quite understand it yet. Think about what happened uh, with Volkswagen. Um, the, some programmers wrote some code that cheated on emissions testing. And I, I thought it was fascinating to watch the, the CEO of Volkswagen North America testify before Congress and blame the software developers. And if I remember his words properly, he said, well, it was just some software developers who did it for whatever reason. As though no one else in the company had anything to do with it. It was just a couple of software developers who wrote this cheating code. I, I don't think Congress believed him. I don't think anybody believed him. But it is a, a fascinating, fascinating idea that a, a CEO before Congress would point, would, would point the finger at a couple of programmers and blame them. We are now villains. We have been pointed out as villains in society. Um, and that's a, a very interesting position for us to hold. Could it be said that the Volkswagen developers might have just been um you know, trying to find the simplest solution to a problem. Rather than fixing the engine, they wrote the, the simplest solution to the test. I think they were probably finding the simplest solution to a manager who was telling them to cheat. But in, that, in either case, whichever case it was, those developers should not have written that code. In the end, that CEO, although he, he said it badly, in the end, that CEO was right. Those developers wrote that code. And they, they must assume at least some of the guilt. I can't believe they wrote it on their own. I believe there were managers pushing them. But they should have said no. Those developers should have stood up and said, no, I will not write code that lies and cheats. Uh, and they should have walked out. And that's where we get to with this ethics thing. There are lines that you draw and you say, I will not do harm with my code. I will not, I will not write code that has a chance of cheating or lying or destroying fortunes or killing people. <laughs> There's a lot of books on Agile and Scrum. It, is there anything that is out there about the craftsmanship movement that's good reading material? 
Well, there have been a number of books written about software craftsmanship. The, the very first one was entitled Software Craftsmanship, and it was a, uh, a very interesting book about how software apparently is moving in the direction of the old uh, guild model, the master and apprentice model. And that book excited a lot of folks uh, who then went on to found companies that adopted a master apprentice journeyman model for hiring and, and uh, grooming their software developers. We may see more and more of that as time goes on. I, it's, it's very possible that the university is the wrong place to train software developers. Um, first of all, the professors themselves usually haven't ever written any code uh, for pay. So they're not really the best people to teach programmers how to work for pay. Secondly, uh, the, the environment in school is really not conducive to learning how to be a professional. So it might be better for software developers to learn in an environment where they are tutored by a master and they are, there are journeymen that they work with uh, and they come up through the ranks as apprentice to journeyman to master. That's interesting. I, I hadn't heard that, but I, I kind of like that in, in principle. And, you know, one of the things that I think is really lacking in our industry is this directional, you know, a, a structure of how to not just learn all the material and get all the knowledge, but how to actually effectively use it and, and use it in an appropriate manners, which I think, you know, goes directly to your point of, of making it an ethical practice. That can be something that we take on to the people that are coming in into the industry and we take it upon ourselves to say, look, you you may not have been taught this in school, but we have a certain set of ethics now. Um, and maybe the solution to that is also to have some sort of um, ethics board, like we were taught, like you do all, the, you talk about all the time, uh, you know, with lawyers or doctors, they have a board that manages and maintains these ethics. Yeah. Isn't that something that we're definitely gonna get to? Um. Probably, um, although it could it could go a number of different ways. If we do nothing, then government will enforce this on us because there's too much at risk, and eventually, eventually the government will start passing governments of the world will start passing laws, and that will force us into a um, a regulated, if not ethical, framework. If we can get there first, if we can uh, set up our own standards and our own rules. Then, when government does come along and finally decide to do it, we can prevent we can present uh, these rules to them as a fait accompli. The um, um, the way that that might be done is it might be with some kind of board, something like the AMA or the Bar Association or or uh, the you know the Association of Architects or something like that. Um, or maybe what we should do, or maybe what we will do, is create a guild model where there are uh, groups of developers that gather around a particular philosophy and they form a guild and that guild enforces its own particular rules. We might have several of these um, scattered around the, the world with each one adopting a slightly different ethical band, a different set of practices and principles. And then we can have a, a very healthy competition. Um, which, whichever ways it goes, um, 
in the end, it's probably going to coalesce into a single entity that could be many decades from now. So I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot here. Um, I, I I was thinking about this um, this situation that it could devolve into, where the government decides to step in and, and take matters into their own hands about our profession. Um, if it's the government or if it's one of these governing boards that comes into play and, and they need to start making decisions about our, you know, our, our best practices. There's a very good strong chance that one of the one of the things that they may want to address is a particular coding language that we all have to now abide by. So if Uncle Bob gets up there in front of the committee and he's asked by the committee members, which which coding language would you say we should take on as the standard practice for our industry? Um, having a board um, enforce a single language for the community would be um, really bad, I think. Uh, and and you'd have you know most developers would just reject that out of hand. Um, so I don't I wouldn't recommend that as a as a practice for the board at all, I would fight that. Having said that, I believe that the, the community of programmers needs to prune the massive tree of languages that we're currently immersed in. Because there are too many. And they are, they're all too similar and there are not enough differences between them. And, and none of them are really that much better than any of the others. So I would imagine over several decades, the, uh, the software community is going to look at it itself pretty hard and say, well, we really only need a few languages. We don't need all these crazy languages. And have some kind of a, a fight over it, and we'll wind up with a few. Probably not just one. Now, if it was just one, the one I would like it to be would be closure at the moment because I like the idea of Lisp. I think that's a nice language. I like the idea of a functional language. And I like the idea that it has access to the full, full stack of all this massive work that's been done in the past. So it sits on the JVM and has access to the Java stack. Um, so if I were forced to pick one, that's the one I would pick. Uh, but I don't think it would be wise to, to force everybody to pick one language. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with that. I don't think that I don't think that we're ever going to see that happen. But it just kind oh, of an interesting way to frame the question, basically, of what what language does Uncle Bob like? Uh, so I just thought I'd add a little twist to it. So um, you were just talking about closure, uh, and you were saying that it was functional, and it's basically Lisp. Uh, is that really kind of where you think? People should really start looking towards is the functional languages and things like closure, uh, so that we start getting more functionally oriented. Well, I think everyone should learn functional programming. Um, it's a uh, it's a very powerful technique. It, it's uh, it helps a great deal with threading. Uh, you cannot have um, uh, race conditions and concurrent update problems if you are programming in a functional style. So it's, uh, it's, it's useful, it's an interesting way of thinking. I think everybody should, should learn it. There are particular situations where uh, doing functional programming is extremely beneficial. So for example, if you've got massively parallel uh, processors, if you've got um, 
lots of little services. If you're going to spin up a whole bunch of servers to do a, uh, uh, some work, uh, working in a functional style can, can make that much easier. On the other hand, if you're writing a simple little thing uh, uh, for a, a website, uh, working in a functional style is not necessarily that much better. So would you say we need to start getting more stateless in our APIs? Like we should be striving for that and maybe pulling a little bit away from the object-oriented programming model where we maintain state through an object? So we should understand how to maintain a stateless system. Yeah, we should all be able to work in a stateless environment when that's necessary. Um, whether, whether or not we all should always be stateless is another matter entirely. And I don't think that that's wise. By the way, the, the, it is often said that uh, objects are the opposite of functional programming because objects have state and functional programming doesn't permit state change. Uh, and that's not exactly right. The uh, objects, objects can have state, but they don't have to change their state. It's perfectly, it's perfectly feasible to create an object-oriented program that is also functional. Is, speaking of which, um, Microsoft with .NET and C Sharp, they're, they're definitely turning the language into a bit more of a functional orientation in sure. some areas of what sure. they're introducing. Um, so I, I would ask this question. Since Microsoft is kind of taking the strategy now with C Sharp of adding a bit more functional type of things to it, while at the same time, they still have this language out there, F-sharp. Do you think that maybe, you know, if, if Microsoft were to come to Uncle Bob and ask him, uh, should, they, should they try to keep going with C-sharp since it's such a popular language? Maybe they could start to get it to be more functional. Do you think that's the route they should take with it? Or so do you think they should just say, look, guys, let's, let's go on to F-sharp. This is, trust us, this is the language you guys need to be learning. You know the, uh, the Peter Principle? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so yeah, people are promoted above their level of competence or, or up into their level of incompetence. This happens with languages as well. Uh, we see languages evolve and evolve and evolve until they evolve into uselessness. They become so complex and, and overburdened that the, nobody wants to use them anymore. <clears throat> We've already begun to see that happen with Java and C Sharp both. Um, they're just, you know, wild, so many features now, and it's just such a rich language, and lot, there's a craving for something simpler. Should C-sharp continue to drive towards a functional paradigm? The answer to that is no, it shouldn't. Um, in fact, what they probably really ought to do with C-sharp is freeze it and leave it alone. They should do the same thing with Java. Freeze it, leave it alone. Um, these will never be functional languages. They can't be functional languages because they support rampant assignment of variables. And so there's just no way to take a, a C-sharp program and write it in a purely functional way without an immense amount of discipline. Maybe, maybe the solution here is to just kind of junk out all of the, maybe just throw out the assignment variable in a brand new language that looks like C-sharp, but we call it C-flat. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and, and that's a that's a reasonable thing to do. So this, one of the reasons I like closure is that it, it has no assignment capability. You, you can't assign variables reliably. Uh, there are ways to change state, but you have to use immense discipline in order to do it. And, and that would be the hallmark of any good functional language. You can't change the state of a variable. So um, 
I'd like to talk real quick, real quickly here, because uh, I know we're getting towards the end of our uh, of the allotted time that I've got with you. Uh, but I wanted to talk to you about this new book that you're writing, the Clean Architecture book. Can you give us a little insight into what's going to be inside of it? Well, the book is a um, it's a book about uh, software architecture. It defines software architecture as the high level module structure of a system, the pattern of dependencies in that modular structure that promotes the ability to plug in units that change for reasons that are different from others. So it, it's a way to separate separate things that change for different reasons and at different times. For example, you would like the database code to plug into the business rule code. You don't want the business rules to know about the database. You want the database to plug in so that you can plug in other databases without the business rules knowing it. You'd like to plug in the GUI or the user interface. Uh, and you'd like to be able to plug it out and plug some other user interface in without the business rules knowing it. The book is about that style of programming where you separate business rules from all the other ancillary things in a software system and turn it into a plug-in model. And in the, in the context of that, I talk about all the, the solid principles again and the history of, of architecture and why we want architecture and the benefits of independent deployability and so on and so on and so on. So should be a fun book. I'm really looking forward to it because, I mean, as my title says, I'm an architect. I, I, I design, I don't, and, and I take this definition from what I've seen on, on your videos uh, as a very important distinction. I'm not saying, oh, we're going to use SQL Server as the database. That's my architectural decision. I'm not going to, you know, we're using MVC as, as our architect. No, no, no. We're talking business business rules. How are we going to separate the business rules from the data, you know, in, as far as the back end? You know, how are we structuring our different projects rather than, you know, what are the tools that we're going to be using? Right. So I think that's a really important distinction that I, I'm sure you make a very strong statement about that in your book. I do. <laughs> so you can tell I've, I've watched a lot of your videos. <laughs> <laughs> so you um, cleancoders.com. You watch the, the ones on. I've, I've watched only a, a few of them that I could afford. Oh, <laughs> I know it's either that or a pizza. Yeah. It's a very different, it's a very different presentation style you've got on there. It's it kind is, of interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have a ton of fun making those videos. I bet. I bet you do. Uh, so um, I do have uh, one last question I want to ask before I start picking from some of the questions that my viewers have right. brought to my attention. Um, the last question I want to ask is, do you think that it's better for a developer in today's world um, to try to learn all these different languages or as, as many different languages as they can or do you think that it's better to just kind of focus in on one and, and if, if we know that it's going to be around for a while, we know it's going to be stable like, you know, Java or C Sharp, uh, please don't pick VB, please don't pick VB.net. Um, but if, you know, you pick one of these more stable languages and just learn it and really engross yourself and become a master of it, do you think, which approach do you think would be better for long-term success in this industry if you're just getting into the developer uh, development industry? Well, uh both. <laughs> you, have to, you have to have a deep knowledge of the language that is your primary tool, right? So the more you know about that language, the more you can make that language 
roll over and beg for dinner, then the better. On the other hand, you cannot focus so much on one language that you abandon others. Uh, so everyone should have a reasonable working knowledge of several dozen languages. And they should run a, a, the gamut of language types. If you're a, a C-sharp programmer, well, then you should learn Ruby. It'll be very different for you. And, mm. and you should learn Clojure or some Lisp. That will be very different for you. Uh, and you should learn Forth and... Um, Golang? Yeah, you can go if you want to. That's fine. Um, you know, I just recently learned Go. That's okay. Erlang would be an interesting one. <laughs> uh, Erlang is pretty pretty cool. You should learn uh, Prologue. That'll turn your guts inside out, or your brain anyway. Um, you should learn a few of these languages. You should learn an assembly language. Everyone should know how to program an assembly language. One. You don't have to learn more than one, but one is probably good enough because... Nothing will remove the magic faster than working in an assembly language. Once you've written some code in Assembler, you will know how everything works. All the magic goes away. Um, and there's, a, there's old advice out there, which is that you should learn a new language every year. This is, this is good, good advice. You don't have to become an expert in that language, but you should learn the basics of it. And as you do that, the language that you do use on a regular basis will take on a different meaning and you'll you'll see deeper insights you'll program in different ways because you've touched these other languages well i'm going to open the floor now to some questions from the viewers and uh most of most of, actually all of these questions have come from one guy and i i don't understand why you only got one guy watching i <laughs> probably i mean if anybody's ever watched this show, I can understand why. I mean, when I go back and watch it, I, I just, yeah. Okay. So, um, Tech Dave, thank you very much, Tech Dave. I know you've been real patient um, while we've been going through all my questions. I, I, I hope that you guys enjoyed my questions. Uh, but Tech Dave asks, um, was the old MVC created because of hardware limits? This would be the old MVC architecture that we were talking about, not the modern MVC. So was it, was it created because of hardware limits? I don't see why it was create, would have been created for hardware limits. It would, it's very interesting because the, um, the small talk language was um, the first one to use a graphical user interface, really. This is, this is the language where uh, mouse icons, windows, the, all that whole thing came about. And because of that, in those very early days, those machines were really powerful. Um, most, most computers couldn't handle the, the throughput of, of maintaining a graphical user interface. You know, most computers in those days were, were talking to a console. Um, so they had to be really fast and had to have a lot of memory comparative, comparatively. And so the machines were very beefy. I don't know why that would have caused uh, the, the, this kind of um, tragedy of riches in these machines would have caused a uh, uh, MVC to be developed. I, I think, and if you listen to Trigvi the way he described it, I think he was after some way of mapping the what was going on in a human's mind to what was going on in the computer. 
So we had this model, and then the view is what the human saw, and the controller is what the human did, and the model is what's inside the computer. Okay. Um, I think that pretty well answered. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree. I don't think that it was a hardware limitation so much as it was just a, a plan, a strategy for how to visualize and conceptualize how to format the code. Um, so would you say that there's a difference between game and non-game programming? And then kind of a follow-up to that is, if there is a difference, how would you apply solid principles to gaming languages, gaming programming? Uh, is there a difference between game and non-game programming? Uh, it probably depends on the game. If we're talking about a real-time game, you know, something like Minecraft or Quake or, or Halo or something like that, then, then there's a difference because of the visual uh, performance. Okay. Uh, other than that, no, there's not a lot of difference. Yeah, I, I don't think that there has been. I've, I've dabbled with Unity 3D, and I've done some Blender rendering and 3D architecture uh, structures and stuff. Um, there is a lot of difference as far as if you're going to be doing rigging and, um, you know, the, the 3D modeling is a very different process. Um, but when it comes to uh, adhering to the solid principles, that's the reason why they're principles. They should be, you know, it, it shouldn't matter which language you're programming in. It shouldn't matter what, uh, what environment you're doing it in. You want to adhere to the solid principles because they help make your development process better. Now, with that being said, Visual Basic for applications is not a very good uh, environment for doing that. Uh, Access does not have any interfaces. It doesn't have any abstract classes, so it becomes very difficult to do any sort of dependency inversion or anything like that. So um, unfortunately, some languages just eliminate the possibility altogether of doing solid. Uh, so just make sure, you know, if you are doing it, maybe you want to pick a language, you want to pick a, a, you know, a, an engine that allows you to do the, to practice the solid principles to make your life a little easier. Uh, would you agree with that there, Bob? Yeah, certainly. And there, there are certain languages which make it very, very difficult. But um, software is pretty much software, you know, whether it's gaming software or accounting software or, or embedded real-time software. There are differences, and there are different concerns. But when it comes down to it, it's if statements, while loops, and assignments. Okay, uh, I'm trying to discern Tech Dave's um, latest question. There's a programming language called Boo that is .NET and uses Python style. Very nice. Have you heard of this, the, the Boo coding language? No. Nope. <laughs> I never heard of it either. Oh, heard of it. Python, huh? Yeah, Python's nice. Yeah, Python's a nice language. You know, I have to say, I like some of the stuff that Microsoft is doing to try to incorporate other languages. You can do PHP, you can do JavaScript, you can do all these other languages in, in Visual Studio now, which I think is, is amazing. I, I know Visual Studio as a tool used to be somewhat limited. It was still fairly good, but I, I remember one of your talks, you were saying Visual Studio is only as good as ReSharper, basically. Yeah, well, I, it is getting better now. I, it took Microsoft a very long time to realize that they needed to put refactorings into Visual Studio. Uh, and ReSharper really kind of grabbed that whole market and, and ran with it for a good long time. Now I think the company JetBrains that makes ReSharper is also making a, uh, a C-sharp development environment. Huh. I, I wouldn't blame them. I mean... It, oh, me neither. I think it's a great idea. They need a competitor. Yeah. Yeah, they definitely do. Um, 
what was the resharp I think was one not resharper but there was a, something called I think resharp that was a competitor of sorts that was open source and free but it just wasn't really quite as good uh, and then of course when Microsoft made Visual Studio Community available for free for yeah. up to five licenses that that really kind of you know I think that kind of put the nail in the coffin for a lot of their competition as Microsoft tends to do uh, yes. you know they make things free all of a sudden when when competition. Clips uh, and it did not kill the IntelliJ market. Interestingly, right? So it's an it's an interesting time, but uh, those JetBrains guys, I gotta hand it to them. Uh, the tools they they put out are pretty good. Ah, so here's an interesting question. I I finally think I understand Tech's, uh, Tech Dave's question here. He says to create maybe a, a new higher language. So this is going back to uh, another. You know, maybe a, a better language would be one that does more incorporation of testing, almost at a at a basic level. So maybe rather than having this dual, you know, you write your unit tests and then you write your language. Maybe maybe we could write some sort of language that is almost self-testing. That's an interesting idea. It is an interesting idea. It would have to be a language in which you say things twice. The goal, the goal behind test-driven development is to be a double-entry bookkeeping. So we need to enter everything two times in two different places. Um, whether it's a test versus production code, or whether it's two different phrasings of the of production code, that could be a very interesting question. You know, I'm almost envisioning this as like a, a, a some sort of place that you go into first to design how you want behaviors, how you want your business rules to work, like some sort of enter in the text of how you want it to, to be applied. And then that kind of drives out what you are going to have, the structure of your application in some way. So you're kind of divining the architecture in some way of your business rules. And then you write out the code underneath all of those things that's supposed to match all of those requirements that you pre-entered into the system. So maybe that's kind of a, you know, maybe not a dual entry system like you're talking about, but almost a, here's what I plan for my rules. This is what I'm going to say in code of sorts of how I want them to be implemented. And now here's the code that fulfills that. But maybe I just do it in more of a, a, a natural language uh, for what those business rules are supposed to be. Yeah, it could be something like Gherkin or, or Cucumber or something like that. Well, um, I think that's probably all the time we got. I, we've already gone like 11 minutes over, but I just want to thank you so much, Uncle Bob, for for being here. I keep calling you Uncle Bob because, you know, everybody knows you as Uncle Bob. But uh, thank you so much, Bob, for coming on. I It My really drew pleasure to have you on. And my pleasure as well. Um, any last words, anything you want to let everybody know about before we, we cut this off? Well, you know, the, the message that I like to give folks is that you should, you should go home every day from work and look in the mirror and say to yourself, I did a hell of a good job today. You should always have this pride of workmanship. And all too often we go home instead and we have to take a shower. So... Keep that in mind, right? You want to you want to be proud every day of what you do. Very sage advice from the sage himself. 
Well, thanks again, Bob. Uh, again, right. it's been a true pleasure. And maybe sometime in the future, I can send you out another random email and you, you decide to join us again. Oh, sure. Anytime. I appreciate it so much. Everybody else, thank you so much for watching. It's, uh, I'm glad you guys have taken time to, to listen to what Uncle Bob says because I think it's really important and very impactful for the future of our, of our industry. So thank you again, everybody, and you have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.